You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. I want to talk today about the American pressure that's being exerted upon Israel during this war. And I want to talk about it in a Torah way, not just from a political point of view, but from a Jewish perspective. Yeah, Biden and America are pressuring Israel every single day in this war. He warns that we're going to lose global support because of what he calls indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. And Biden and all his chutzpah is calling for a change in the Israeli government. He says this particular government's making it very difficult to come to agreements with. He's declared war on the Netanyahu government. And this pressure will continue after the war as well. America's inside our kishkas right now. They're in the war room and they're going to have their say what's going to be with Gaza when this thing is over. America's pushing for the PA to take over Gaza instead of the Hamas. That's what they're planning for us. And the Israeli government is pushing back against Biden, especially regarding their plans for a Fatah-ruled Gaza. But we're not pushing back nearly enough. So it's like we've lost our sovereignty. But the average Jew will say, well, we need America. We need the arms. They're helping us, aren't they? There really is this feeling amongst Jews all over the world that U.S.-Israel relations is just a bed of roses. And without the United States, Israel couldn't exist. People simply don't know the truth about the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship. And it's far less strewn with roses than most people believe. From its inception, the United States placed tremendous difficulties in the path of the new Jewish state. In the 1948 War of Independence, when Israel was fighting for its very survival, America put an embargo on all weapons to the Middle East. We're talking three years after the Holocaust, when the Arab nations ganged up on us to bring upon us another Holocaust. And only through God's miracle did we win that war. 6,000 Jews out of a population of 600,000 fell in that war. Israel didn't get a bullet from the United States in the War of Independence. And then, in 1956, President Eisenhower, he forced Israel to give up the Sinai and Gaza to Nasser. Not a bullet was sold to Israel by the United States until the early 1960s. And in the crucial weeks before the Six-Day War of 1967, as Israel's very fate hung in the balance, the United States didn't lift a finger. It was the French mirages that made that preemptive strike to bring victory in the 1967 war. That miraculous victory had nothing to do with the United States. And moving on to the Yom Kippur War in 1973, it was fear of the United States that moved Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan to make the criminal step of allowing Egypt and Syria to strike the first blow in that war and doom hundreds of soldiers to die because of that decision. And then when Israel was finally winning that war, it was the United States that prevented the Israelis from destroying Egyptian power and their third army when Israel had them surrounded. That is the history of USA to Israel in her early days. So American policy has always been to snatch the fruits of victory from Israel. It happened in the Lebanese war as well. Most people think that the first Lebanese war was some kind of Vietnam for Israel, and it was. But that's only because we let it happen that way 
because at the outset of that war, we were physically liquidating the terrorists and their leaders in Beirut. It was only the American pressure of Ronald Reagan that prevented us from totally wiping out the PLO back then. And so I bring these points so we understand that Israel doesn't exist because of American aid. The only reason American aid started to come in is when Israel got really strong and became a superpower in the Middle East. Then it was the American interest to back Israel. And that's it. It's a matter of interests. And this malady of relying on the nations and trusting in man, the prototype example is in the Parsha we just read. What, how does the Parsha open? time after two years. What two years? That Yosef sat in jail an extra two years. Why? Because he kissed up to the Gentile while sitting in that Egyptian prison. Let's get back to that episode. Paro's butler and baker are sitting in jail. They're imprisoned in the dungeon. And Yosef interprets the dream of the butler. He tells the butler that the meaning of his dream is that he's going to be back in his position in another three days. And then Yosef says the following to the butler. And this is what gets him in trouble. Seems like this. He says, when things go well for you and you get out of here, just do me a favor and mention me to Paro. Maybe you'll be able to get me out of this place because I was originally kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews when I came here and I didn't do anything to deserve being thrown here in prison. But what does it say at the end of the Parsha? But the butler did not remember Yosef. He forgot all about him. And the next Parsha opens, and at the end of two years, what does that mean after two years? What does that mean? That Joseph sat an extra two years. Instead of 10 years in prison, he sat for 12 years. Why? Because he requested help from the butler. And the famous question that's always asked is, well, you're supposed to use Derech HaTeva. You're supposed to, you're not supposed to trust in miracles. You have to do your Hishtadlut. You have to make an effort in a real way. And then Hashem will help you. So Yosef was simply making an effort. He was mentioning to the butler to help him out because he didn't want to rely on miracles. What's so wrong about that? So why was Yosef punished? Well, if you look at his words to the butler, he left Hashem out of the picture. He trusted too much in the butler. Do me a favor, get me out of here because I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. It's not fair what happened to me. He doesn't have to tell the butler all that. You can see through his words that he's relying too much on flesh and blood. And he didn't have to tell the butler, I didn't do anything to deserve being here. What are you telling him that for? If he had said to him, listen, I did you a favor. Do me a favor. Like business. That's okay. You're supposed to do that. You don't rely on miracles. And that's the problem with us. If we approached our relationship with the United States, it's business. You have an interest. We have an interest. Let's do business. Then you're not relying on the nations. Then it's not a chilul Hashem anymore. You're standing tall. By doing that, you're not showing a lack of faith in Hashem. You're not groveling. You're not conducting yourself like America is your master. But we continue to subjugate ourselves to the nations because we're afraid to be alone. And the truth is that the destiny of the Jew is dafka, to be alone, to be isolated. Am levedad yishkon. That's what Bilam said when he was trying to curse the Jewish people. He said, Am levedad yishkon. They're a nation that dwells alone. And it's interesting that Bilam said that out of an intention to curse us. And people still think it's a curse to be alone. But no, that's the bracha. It's a blessing to be alone. And we're so afraid of it. Rabbi Merikahana, 
used to explain it like this, that the final redemption of the Jewish people cannot come as long as the Jew has even one ally upon whom he leans against. That is, Israel, at the end of the day, will have to be isolated. Will have to be an Am Levadad Yishkon. Why? Because as long as the Jew has even one ally, he's always going to convince himself that his salvation was due because of that particular ally. We'll never pin the victory on Hashem. The victory in 1948 was because we got weapons from Czechoslovakia. In 1967, we got those mirages from France. In 1973, we got the phantoms from America. And ever since then, wow, without America, we can't survive. So we're always attributing our victories to anybody but God. We never give God the credit because we're logical, we're practical, nothing transcendental about us. And so the Jews only hope in returning to the one and only, to the God of Israel, is if we have no allies to pin our victory upon. That's why the Jewish nation has to be an Am Levadad Yishkon, a nation that dwells alone. And that is a decree upon us. And in case you haven't noticed, Israel is sliding towards isolation. But it's not the isolation that God demands from us. He wants us to move deliberately towards separation and isolation and trust in the Almighty. But what's happening now is a forced isolation of the nations slowly moving away from Israel. Yeah, we still have America as an ally, kind of, with their even-handed stance. And they're becoming more and more even-handed all the time. But in Jewish terms, salvation and redemption for the Jew will come only when he's isolated and alone with his God. And that's what's going to happen, whether we like it or not. The whole question is, how will that isolation come? Will the isolation come about because we believed in Hashem and did the things we had to do, which is wipe out the enemy, annex the territories, throw the jackals off the Temple Mount? That will bring isolation, but that will also bring the blessing because it showed we believed in Hashem. It showed that we didn't fear the nations. We feared God. And it'll certainly help not having a fifth column of Ishmaelites amongst us when those wars start that fly. So yeah, those actions will bring upon us isolation. But if we don't take those steps, the isolation will come anyway. But without God on our side. And that's what you see happening. America, our staunch ally, they're not on our side. They're playing it even-handed. And so the isolation is happening in any case. But if it happens in that way, that is, after we finish groveling to America and we'll be left alone anyway, then we'll be this eviscerated country who had to succumb to some two-state solution with an Arab time bomb amongst us, and we won't have God on our side. That's the other way to be isolated. And so that's the difference between Gula Bita and Gula Machishana. A swift, glorious redemption and a painful redemption. It all depends on us. Isolation? That will be in any case. You know, just to lighten things up a little bit, an Israeli stand-up comic, he went to entertain the troops in Gaza, and in his routine, he addressed the soldiers, and he asked them the following question. Let's say that you and your wife plan to meet together at four o'clock in the afternoon, and you're sitting in the coffee shop with one of your friends, drinking a cup of coffee, and you look at your watch, and it's 4.15. So he asked the soldiers, what are you going to do now? So one soldier said, you call her up right away to apologize. Another one said, you run over there and say, you're sorry. And then the comedian said, no, no, no. This is what you do. You stay there and you finish your cup of coffee. 
Just finish the coffee because she's going to be mad at you anyway. You're in trouble anyway. So sit there and enjoy yourself and just finish your coffee. And what's the muscle? What was the parable? That Israel is going to be criticized and chastised by the world no matter what she does. So you might as well finish the job, finish your coffee, because they're going to scream at you anyway. Hey, let's make that comedian our new chief of staff. We already have a bunch of clowns running the show. Anyway, I wanted to move on to another subject, but it's very connected, really, to what I just talked about, isolation and Yosef Atzadik. Usually on this show, I don't get too messianic or too technical, but I thought it would be appropriate to speak about the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef, because we'll see that he mirrors the biblical figure of Yosef. And right now we're heavy into the parts of the Torah that deal with Yosef. Now, usually when one speaks about the Messiah, they're talking about Mashiach ben David. But the redemption, it's a process. It's not like you go from Galut to Geula in one shot. It's a process that includes within it the ingathering of the exiles, the flourishing of the land, the wars that are waged, and Mashiach ben Yosef is a big part of this process because he begins it. And that's why the Gon Vilna calls Mashiach ben Yosef Mashiach da'atchalta. He's the inaugural Messiah. And he's involved in the whole physical side of the redemption, the return to Zion, the fighting of God's wars, while the role of Mashiach ben David is to complete the spiritual redemption. Now, what's fascinating about Mashiach ben Yosef is that the sages learn a lot about him from his progenitor, Yosef at Sadiq, in our Pasha. First of all, the Pashas that include Yosef, they take up four Pashas of the Torah, which is more than even Abraham or Yaakov, right? A, a nice chunk of Genesis is about Yosef. And that's what we said about Mashiach ben Yosef. He takes up a large chunk of the redemption. We also see that the biblical Yosef was involved in physical endeavors, managing Egypt, managing the famine, which is what Mashiach ben Yosef is all about. He's involved also in the physical side of the redemption, as we said. What's another parallel? Well, it says that Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And this is one of Yosef's attributes not just in this generation, but in every generation, Mashiach ben Yosef recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. They scoff at him. They mock him and his message. And the Gaon Vilna explains that this estrangement and the ridicule and opposition to Mashiach ben Yosef, that's what delays the redemption. Mashiach ben Yosef's role of reviving the land, ingathering the exiles, conquest of the land, they oppose that. Not only do they oppose it, but Yosef's brothers try to kill him. They see him as a threat. And we see today the estrangement and mistreatment of those who try to further the redemption. But Mashiach ben Yosef is willing to endure personal suffering for Israel's salvation. The Gonmi Vilna says that there's a Mashiach ben Yosef and a Mashiach ben David in every generation. And if the Jews don't merit redemption in a particular generation, the roles of the messiahs are passed down to someone else in the next generation because you always have free choice to bring the redemption. And so there's a potential Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David in every generation. And I want to now read some of what the students of the Gonmi Vilna wrote concerning Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. 
says like this, the general duty of the two messiahs, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, together throughout the generations, is defense and war against the three chiefs of impurity, Esau, Yishmael, and the Erev Rav, which is the mixed multitude. Mashiach ben Yosef's special duty is confronting Esau, the impurity of the left, and that of Mashiach ben David is confronting Yishmael, the main goal of the Erev Rav. And by the way, the Erev Rav is that part of the Jewish people who are intent on war against God and against the truth and credibility of his Torah. That's the Erev Rav. He says the Erev Rav, their goal is to mate Esau and Ishmael and separate the two messiahs. And our main battle is to shatter and rout the power of the Erev Rav. And the Gra continues, the Erev Rav is our greatest enemy. It is what separates between the two messiahs. What does he mean separates between the two messiahs? What he means is that if Mashiach ben Yosef isn't followed up quickly by Mashiach ben David, there's a separation between them. That means there's going to be a lot of tragedy. We're going to have a gula be'ita, a redemption in its time, a redemption with pain and suffering. Because in that situation, Mashiach ben Yosef is going to be alone and he's going to be killed. And the students of the Gra continue. The war against the Erev Rav is the hardest and most bitter. And we must gird ourselves with our last strength towards this end. And whoever does not actively take part in the war against the Erev Rav automatically becomes a partner to its impurity. And whoever he is, he's better off not having been born. Well, those are pretty strong words for the Jews who don't fight against the Erev Rav. And so with the Gra emphasizing this war against the Erev Rav, He's saying that whoever does not actively fight the Erevav becomes their partner and it's better off not having been born. What does he mean? He's warning us against the distorted tolerance and the avat chinam, the groundless love and all that. Those are the main impediments to the redemption. Now, many rabbis, including Rabbi Yehuda Getz, who was the rabbi of the Western Wall for nearly three decades and a known Kabbalist, he said that on the evening that Rabbi Meir Kahana was murdered in New York, Rabbi Getz said he was davening Vatican in the Kotel tunnels, where he always does, at that exact same time. That is, the rabbi was murdered in New York at nine in the evening, and that was Vatican time in Israel the next day. And Rabbi Getz had a dream about the demise of Mashiach ben Yosef. And he said at the funeral that he dreamt that Rabbi Kahana was Mashiach ben Yosef. And in Rabbi Meir Kahana's epic book, The Jewish Idea, or Ayon, his last two chapters are on the subject of Mashiach ben Yosef, which is kind of rare for Rabbi Kahana because he wasn't a mystic. You know, he didn't talk much about Mashiach, but he really got into the subject of Mashiach ben Yosef at the end of his book. And this is what he writes. Mashiach ben Yosef is kept in suffering as long as Israel suffer in exile. Mashiach ben Yosef, he symbolizes the options of redemption in its time, or in haste, if Israel repents through deeds that prove faith and trust in God, thereby sanctifying God's name, God would redeem Mashiach ben Yosef and he would start the redemption. He is ready and present in every generation. If Israel merit it and they bring the redemption in the glorious way, then the war of Mashiach ben Yosef will end in speedy, glorious victory without messianic birth pangs. Through deeds of faith and trust in God, that is, deeds formed without fear of the nation's reaction, then Israel will be ready to recognize the Messiah and follow him. Again, that is, the people have to recognize him, unlike the brothers who didn't recognize Yosef 
we have to recognize him. And a few pages later, where he's talking about the glorious redemption, he says, yet such redemption cannot come as long as Israel depended on the nations and lacked complete faith in God. It will not come as long as Israel profaned God's name by their refusal to expel from every Israel the Ishmaelites who revile and profane God's name as long as the Temple Mount remains a den of alien Yishmaelite foxes, as long as Israel fear flesh and blood, and therefore refuse to perform the mitzvot for fear of the nation's reaction, redemption, bachishena, that is the glorious redemption, will be impossible. So you see now that we are circling back to what the rabbi said before about bidud, isolation, being the key. And one more point the rabbi makes if Israel do not merit redemption, achishana, in haste, in the glorious way, and it becomes a redemption of bi'ita in its time, the slow, painful way, God, he'll still release Mashiach ben Yosef, but he'll go to war just with a few, and there'll be suffering, tragedy, and horror. And indeed, he will be slain in this war. Only a few will follow him, whereas the vast majority of Israel will ridicule and oppose him. And the mixed multitude of the impoverished regime, which will be in control, will fight him as well. That was Rabbi Meir Kahane from his book, The Jewish Idea. And I was reading from the final chapter of that book, which is on the subject of Mashiach ben Yosef. And one can see how Rabbi Kahane fulfills some of the criteria of Mashiach ben Yosef that we mentioned. Because Rabbi Kahane was trying to hasten the redemption. He was explaining how we can avoid the tragedies of Gu'ula of the slow, painful redemption through acts of Kiddush Hashem and not fearing the nations. And just like Yosef and Sadiq, he wasn't recognized by his brothers. Even though he loved his fellow Jew, he was shunned by most of Am Yisrael. And in another way, Rabbi Merkahana reminds us of Yosef and Sadiq. In what way? Well, when you hear all the right-wing nationalists speak, the journalists, the politicians, the podcasters, they're all very good at explaining how lousy the situation is getting, how it's ridiculous to have a two-state solution, why you should never compromise over the land of Israel. There's a lot of good people out there who can explain that very well. But nobody out there is telling you what you should do. We know what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't compromise with these beasts. The Hamas is bad. The Arab population identifies with the terrorists. Everybody knows that. Everybody can really say it. But it was only Rabbi Kahana who said, yeah, that's the problem. And here's the solution. We have to expel the Arabs from the land of Israel. And the next, Judea and Samaria. That might be a very harsh solution, a difficult one, but it's a difficult and harsh solution to a very difficult problem. There are no nice answers to this, but it's what the Torah says over and over again. And you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land. So Rabbi Kahana was merely repeating what the Torah commands us. When we enter the land of Israel, you have to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And if you don't, there'll be thorns in your eyes. So yes, that made the rabbi very unique. That he didn't just you know fetch over the problem, but he offered solid solutions. And that's just like Yosef at Sadiq. You know, when Yosef solves Pharaoh's dream, he tells him what the dream means. That seven years are coming. There'll be a great surplus of food all over Egypt. And that will be followed by seven years of famine. When all the surplus will be forgotten. And he tells Parol that this famine will ravage the land. It'll be so terrible, there'll be no way of telling that there was ever a surplus in the land. Okay, Yosef solves the dream and presents the problem. But listen to what he says now. 
And so Pharaoh must seek out a man with insight and wisdom and place him in charge of Egypt. And he should appoint officials over the land. He has to set up a rationing system. That has to be set up. So during the seven years of surplus, we can manage the food. So here is Yosef, not just explaining the dream, not just presenting the problem and quetching about it, but offering an immediate solution. And that's what real leaders with vision and courage, that's what they do. That's it for me. And before signing off, we have a new website that we set up called LennyGoldberg.com. It's easy to remember, LennyGoldberg.com. And you can check out my Bible classes. There's a link to many of Rabbi Kahana's books and Binyamin Kahana's books. One of those books is Confronting the Holocaust and coming up is the 10th of Tevet. And on that date, the chief rabbinate of Israel chose to observe the Asurabe Tevet, the 10th of Tevet, as a day to remember the Holocaust. So, And so maybe it's a timely thing to do to order a shiur by Benjamin Zevkahana, an amazing shiur called Confronting the Holocaust. And we know that the Holocaust has been covered by every angle, right? You got courses given in universities on it from all different perspectives. And so I know that anybody can learn a lot from this small booklet. And you can order that through our new website, LennyGoldberg.com. Plus, on that website, you'll have a link to all my Jewish Truth Bomb shows and lots of articles and other interesting stuff. And I'll be back next week, same time, same station.